0: Hello! We decided to give you the premiere edition of the Music Halls of Fame podcast on this RSS feed. On the Music Halls of Fame podcast, we honor a year and an inductee into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is our main focus. We also look at an artist's chances of being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and every week we spotlight a different Music Hall of Fame, Museum, or Walk of Fame along with Ann and Duck D, So, if you like the Music Halls of Fame podcast, then please like and subscribe to the Music Halls of Fame podcast. New episodes drop every Wednesday and are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, Audible Podcasts, Amazon Music Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts from. So, without any further ado... Please enjoy the episode and don't forget to like and subscribe to it. Thank you. This is the Music Halls of Fame Podcast, Episode One. On this week's show, we honor a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Class of 1986, look at the case for putting Jane's addiction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and our spotlight museum is Paisley Park in Chanhassen, Minnesota. This podcast celebrates those who have been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We also look at the case for certain artists to be inducted into the hall who aren't there yet. Plus, every week we discuss a different musical hall of fame, a walk of fame, or a museum and celebrate someone who's been inducted into them. Let's start with our main focus of the podcast, which is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The Hall Foundation was established on April 20, 1983. Former Atlantic Records chairman Ahmet Erdogan was the head of the foundation at the time. Three years later, a committee chose Cleveland, Ohio to be the site of the physical location for the museum over Detroit, New York City, Philadelphia, Memphis, and Cincinnati. I say physical location because members have been inducted into the hall since 1986, before the building was opened. Cleveland was chosen due to what DJ Alan Freed did to promote rock and roll, including mainstreaming the phrase rock and roll, which was originally black slang for sex, and for holding the first rock and roll concert, which only lasted a few minutes before police broke it up, actually. Ground was broken for the building on June 7, 1993. It opened on September 1, 1995 at 1100 Rock and Roll Boulevard on the shore of Lake Erie. The hall gets over 400,000 visitors a year on average. The normal hours of operation are 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., except on Thursdays when they're open until 9 p.m. They're normally open later in the summer months. General admission at the moment is $30. Children 12 and under are $20. College students, first responders, military members, and Northeast Ohio residents are $25. And kids 5 and under, Hall of Fame members, and Cleveland residents are free. ID is required to get all those discounts, by the way. Rockhall.com is their website, that's R-O-C-K-H-A-L-L dot C-O-M. As with all places these days, due to COVID restrictions, check with the website for updated information and hours. The criteria for being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was originally that, quote, artist's have to have had released their first record 25 years earlier and have created music whose originality, impact, and influence has changed the course of rock and roll, end quote. That interpretation has been updated in recent decades to include music that rock and roll influenced, like reggae, country, and hip-hop, and also youth culture that music has influenced and vice versa. That's why hip hop artists have been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, by the way. The different categories that people can be inducted for are one, for musical excellence, which is for artists, musicians, songwriters, and producers who have had dramatic impact on music, two, early influencers artists whose music influenced rock music and youth culture like jazz and blues. Three, the Amit Erdogan Award, which is named for famed record executive Amit Erdogan and goes to a non-performer who has had an impact like record executives and managers. There's also a category that inducts songs that have influenced music. Past winners have been... The Trogs' is Wild Thing and Sham the Sham and the Pharaohs' classic song, Wooly Bully. Of course, the most popular category is the Performers category, which has everyone from Elvis to Tina Turner. The different nominating committees decide who will make the official ballots for that year. Then the ballots are sent to a thousand musicologists, executives, performers, and other experts And the fans also get a chance to vote, with that vote usually being held on the hall's website. And from all that, the final inductees are then chosen. Now, with all that being said, let us look at this week's honoree and the year that they were honored. The year was 1986. The yearly inflation rate in the United States was 1.91%. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed out the year at 1,895. The Federal Reserve's interest rate was 7.50%. The average cost of a new house was $89,430. Average income per year was $22,400. Average monthly rent was $385. Average price of a new car, $9,255. And a gallon of gas, which set you back 89 cents. Ronald Reagan was President of the United States and in the middle of his second term in 1986, The space shuttle Challenger exploded shortly after takeoff, killing all astronauts on board. The Chernobyl nuclear disaster took place at a nuclear plant in the Ukrainian city of Chernobyl, killing over 4,000 people and releasing radioactive fallout. The Hands Across America charity event took place to help raise money to help fight hunger. That was when 5 million people stood hand in hand and sang the song, Hands Across America. The Statue of Liberty reopened to the general public after going through a renovation. The Voyager airplane became the first plane to circle the globe without refueling. Halley's comet passed by Earth and won't be seen again until 2061. The Soviet Mir space station launched in 1986. It burned up in the atmosphere in 2001, purposely. Sir Richard Branson took his powerboat, the Virgin Challenger 2, across the Atlantic Ocean, breaking the record for the fastest crossing of the Atlantic in a boat. The disease of that year was mad cow disease, which killed a lot of cows. Smoking was banned on public transportation. Gas from a volcano in Cameroon, West Africa killed over 1,500 people. Pan Am Flight 73 was hijacked in Karachi. A bomb exploded on a TWA plane over Greece. An earthquake in San Salvador, El Salvador killed over 1,500 people. A newspaper in England revealed that Israel had nuclear weapons. Famous people who were born in 1986 include Olympic champion Usain Bolt, tennis star Rafael Nadal, actresses Megan Fox, Amanda Burns, Amber Heard, and Amelia Clark, wrestlers Seth Rollins and Charlotte Flair, and models Ruby Rose and Irina Shank. Famous people who passed away in 1986 include mountain climber Tenzing Norgay. Actors Cary Grant, Donna Reed, and James Cagney. Civil rights leader Ella Baker. Basketball player Len Bias. Artist Georgia O'Keeffe. The Duchess of Windsor and wife of King Edward VIII, Wallace Simpson. Sweden's Prime Minister Olaf Palma, who was murdered, actually. Baseball player Hank Greenberg. Lawyer Roy Cohn and the seven astronauts on board the Challenger Space Shuttle, including teacher Christy McAuliffe. The Nobel Peace Prize went to chairman of the President's Commission on the Holocaust, Ely Wiesel. Philippines President Corazon Aquino was named Time Magazine's Person of the Year, and actor Mark Harmon was named People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive. In technology, a new company called Microsoft started selling stock shares. The first laptop, the IBM PC Convertible, was introduced. The first PC virus called Brain started spreading. The Hacker Manifesto was published. Fuji introduced the first disposable camera. Apple introduced the Mac Plus. JVC and Vintech companies were both founded in 1986. In video games for that year, the first Legend of Zelda... Castlevania and Metroid games were big. Also, Acclaim, Ubisoft, and Bethesda Softworks companies all started up in 1986. In books, Mary Wilson of the Supremes released her autobiography called Dream Girl, My Life is a Supreme. Stephen King released his classic horror novel, It. Tom Clancy released Red Storm Rising. Robert Ludlam released the book The Born Supremacy. Pat Conroy released The Prince of Tides. Dark Horse Comics was founded in 1986. Frank Miller released the genre game-changing graphic novel Batman The Dark Knight Returns. Alan Moore released Watchmen. Winston Groom released Forrest Gump. and Clive Barker released The Hellbound Heart. Anthony Robbins released Unlimited Power, the New Science of Personal Achievement. In football, the New York Giants won the Super Bowl, which was held in 1987 at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California, for the season that started in 1986. Neil Diamond sang the national anthem there. The halftime show was a salute to Hollywood's 100th anniversary with George Burns, Mickey Rooney, the Grambling State University and USC marching bands, a bunch of Disneyland characters, and some Southern California high school drill teams and dancers. Okay, not exactly Britney Spears or The Weeknd. Penn State won the NCAA college football championship in 1986. The New York Mets won baseball's World Series after Bill Buckner of the Boston Red Sox had the ball go between his legs into the outfield, letting the Mets score the winning run in Game 6 when the Sox were one out away from winning their first World Series championship since 1918. The Mets then went on to win Game 7 and the championship. The Boston Celtics won the NBA championship in 1986. Louisville won the NCAA Men's College Basketball Tournament. Texas won the NCAA Women's College Basketball Tournament. The Montreal Canadiens won Hockey Stanley Cup. Greg LeMond won the Tour de France. Ferdinand won the Kentucky Derby but couldn't finish the Triple Crown, losing the Preakness to Snow Chief and the Belmont Stakes to Danzig Connection. In boxing, Mike Tyson became the youngest heavyweight champion. In golf, Jack Nicholas won the Masters Golf Tournament, Ray Floyd won the US Open, Greg Norman won the British Open, and Bob Tway won the PGA Championship. On the women's side, Jane Geddes won the US Open, and Pat Bradley won the Women's LPGA Championship, the Du Maurier Classic and the Nabisco Dynashore Classic. In tennis, Boris Becker and Martina Navratilova won Wimbledon, Yvonne Lendl and Martina Navratilova won the U.S. Open, Yvonne Lendl and Chris Everett Lloyd won the French Open, and for some reason there was no Australian Open tennis tournament in 1986. In the European League championships, Liverpool won England's Football League First Division Championship, as the Premier League was known as back then. Real Madrid won Spain's La Liga. Paris Saint Germain won France's Ligue 1. Juventus won Italy's Serie A. And Bayern Munich won Germany's Bundesliga. In auto racing, Alain Prost won the Formula One Championship. Bobby Ray Hall won the IndyCar Championship, and Dale Earnhardt Sr. won the NASCAR Winston Cup Series. The Associated Press Male and Female Athletes of the Year were basketball player Larry Bird and tennis superstar Martina Navratilova. Other athletes who had major accomplishments that year include Chicago Bulls star Michael Jordan, who put up 63 points in a playoff game against the Boston Celtics. Boston Red Sox pitcher Roger Clemens, who struck out 20 pitchers in a game, 2 sports sensation Bo Jackson, and figure skater Debbie Thomas, who became the first African American to win both the U.S. and World Ice Skating Championships. In movies, Top Gun was the biggest movie of the year, turning Tom Cruise into a superstar. It was also the year of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Platoon, which came out late in 1986 but got popular in 1987, Crocodile Dundee, Cobra, Back to School, The Karate Kid Part 2, The Color Purple, Rocky IV, Iron Eagle, Three Amigos, The Great Mouse Detective, Nine and a Half Weeks, Highlander, There Can Be Only One, The Golden Child, and Aliens. It was also the year a little anime studio that George Lucas started and Steve Jobs bought and turned into a uh, Goliath called Pixar opened up. At the Academy Awards, Platoon won Best Picture and Oliver Stone for Best Director. Paul Newman won Best Actor for The Color of Money. Marley Matlin won Best Actress for Children of a Lesser God. Michael Caine and Diane Wiest won Best Supporting Actor and Actress, respectively, for Hannah and Her Sisters. Berlin's song, Take My Breath Away, from Top Gun won Best Original Song, and Round Midnight won Best Original Score. On television, Oprah's local TV show went national and turned her into a megastar. The Disney Channel premiered, as did L.A. Law, Designing Women, and Double Dare. Ending that year were The Fall Guy, Different Strokes, T.J. Hooker, The Love Boat, Night Rider, Punky Brewster, The Paper Chase, Riptide, Press Your Luck, and Trapper John M.D. The most popular TV shows of 1986 were The Cosby Show, Family Ties, Cheers, Murder, She Wrote, The Golden Girls, 60 Minutes, Night Court, Growing Pains, Moonlighting, and Who's the Boss? At the Primetime Emmy Awards, the Golden Girls won Best Comedy and Cagney and Lacey won Best Drama. In music for 1986, the Phantom of the Opera musical premiered in London, England. It hit Broadway in 1988. The Monkees went on a reunion tour. Bob Geldof was given knighthood by the Queen for his efforts to end hunger in Africa. Queen, the band, played their final concert with Freddie Mercury. The Smiths called it quits, just as they were beginning to hit the mainstream, as did Wham! Black Flag, ELO, Men at Work, and Prince in the Revolution. Who got together in 1986? No Doubt, Green Day, Cypress Hill, and N.W.A. Music magazine Q launched in 1986. Hip-hop began creeping into the mainstream with hit albums like Run-DMC's Raising Hell and the Beastie Boys' License to Ill. Alternative music, better known back then as college radio, began to bust out onto mainstream radio stations with artists like REM getting modestly popular, becoming superstars, in the early 1990s. According to Billboard Magazine, That's What Friends Are For by Dionne Warwick and Friends was the biggest single of the year. The others were Say You Say Me from Lionel Richie, I Miss You by Climax, On My Own by Patti LaBelle and Michael McDonald, Mr. Mister's Broken Wings, Whitney Houston's How Will I Know, Party All the Time by Eddie Murphy, Survivor's Burning Heart, Mr. Mister's Curie and Robert Palmer's classic Addicted to Love. Whitney Houston's debut self-titled album was the biggest album of 1986. It was also the year of Hearts' self-titled album, ZZ Top's Afterburner, Dire Straits' Brothers in Arms, Janet Jackson's Control, Mr. Mister's Welcome to the Real World, Chardet's Promise, Phil Collins' No Jacket Required, and Gloria Stefan and Miami Sound Machine's Primitive Love. It was also the year of the Top Gun soundtrack with big hits by Kenny Loggins and Berlin, Madonna's True Blue album, the return of Van Halen with Sammy Hagar as the new frontman, Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet, which helped to usher the hairband era into the mainstream at least, And Steve Winwood had his comeback album in 1986 with Back in the High Life. Lady Gaga, Drake, Ellie Goulding, Solange, Kelly Pickler, Skylar Gray, Charlotte Church, Alex Turner of Arctic Monkeys, Ollie Sykes of Bring Me the Horizon, Mario, bassist Tal Wilkenfeld, Kevin Parker, a.k.a. Tame Impala, David Jones of McFly, Singer actress Cassie, Leah Michelle, Leighton Meester, Lindsay Lohan, Emmy Rossum, Stacey Orico, and rapper Kevin Gates were all born in 1986. Musical artists who passed away in 1986 include Cliff Burton of Metallica, who was killed when Metallica's tour bus was involved in an accident; Phil Lynott of Thin Lizzy; Richard Manuel of the band. Entertainers Desi Arnaz, Kate Smith, Dean Reed, Gordon McRae, and Scatman Crothers. Manager Albert Grossman. Disc jockeys John R. and William B. Williams. Guitarist Robbie Basso. Record exec Moses Ash of Ash Records. Jazz trumpet player Thad Jones. Singer Esquelita, Saxophonist Eddie Lockjaw Davis. Tracy Pugh of The Saints, singer and blues guitarist Bea Booz, singer Lee Dorsey, Billy Rancher of Billy Rancher and the Unreal Gods, Hollywood Fats of Canned Heat, Tommy Kiefer of Crocus, Joe Farrell of Return to Forever, harpist Dorothy Ashby, jazz saxophonist Hank Mobley, guitarist Clarence Garlow, folk singer Kate Wolfe, the King of Swing band leader Benny Goodman, blues harmonica player Sonny Terry, O'Kelly Isley Jr. of the Isley Brothers, country guitarist Joe Maphis, Bobby Nunn of the Coasters, and singers Mark Dinning and Lee Dorsey. At the Grammy Awards for music from 1986, Graceland from Paul Simon won Album of the Year, That's What Friends Are For, from Dionne Warwick, Sir Elton John, Gladys Knight, and Stevie Wonder won Song of the Year. Steve Winwood won Record of the Year for Higher Love with Shaka Khan. And Bruce Hornsby and the Range won Best New Artist. At the Eurovision Singing Contest held in Bergen, Norway, Sandra Kim from Belgium won for the song J'aime la Vie. At the Tony Awards, The Mystery of Edwin Drood won Best Musical and Sweet Charity won Best Revival. 1986 was also the inaugural class of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, even though a physical museum wouldn't be opened until 1995 in Cleveland, Ohio. Talent scout and record producer John Henry Hammond II father of famed blues musician John P. Hammond, by the way, was the first person inducted into the non-performer Lifetime Achievement Award category. Radio disc jockey Alan Freed, who held the first rock and roll concert and coined the phrase rock and roll in the mainstream, and Sun Records owner Sam Phillips were inducted into the non-performers category. Jimmy Rogers, Jimmy Yancey, and Robert Johnson were inducted into the early influencers category, and 10 members were inducted into the performers category of the hall during its first year. They were Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Sam Cooke, Fats Domino, the Everly Brothers, Buddy Holly, Jerry Lee Lewis, James Brown, Ray Charles, and this next artist. In music, there's often someone who takes what is regarded as obscure fringe or underground music, if you will, and brings it to the mainstream audience. This artist did that and became one of the 20th century's biggest icons by doing it. He was born on January tenth, 1935 in Tupelo, Mississippi. When he was younger, he loved gospel and R&B music, having grown up in a majority African-American neighborhood. The family moved to Memphis, Tennessee, where he was bullied in school for being a mama's boy. His teachers thought his singing was eh, average at best. For his 11th birthday, he was given a guitar. He couldn't put it down after that. He worked a couple of odd jobs after he got out of high school and tried to form a group of gospel singers, but that didn't really pan out. In 1953, he walked into Sun Records in order to record a couple of songs. Sun Records was focused on black artists at the time, but Sam Phillips wanted to bring the music to white audiences and was on the lookout for an artist who he thought could do that. Sam invited this guy to come back and record. Together, they found a few guys to play with, and one night they were fooling around, and they were playing a blues song called That's All Right. They decided to record it and give it to a local DJ who played the song three days later. The radio station's switchboard lit up, wondering who the singer was. And that was only the beginning. This man courted controversy for a few reasons. First, it was the 1950s and mainstream and America in general didn't appreciate music from the black community, especially early rock and roll. To have a white man singing it, especially one who grew up on it and had a genuine love for it, well, that was pretty scandalous. Second, the way he danced around and swiveled his hip was deemed way too liberal for the standards of the time. He fought censorship and racism for singing what was considered black music. Didn't matter, though. The ladies loved him. A couple of famous appearances on The Ed Sullivan Show helped to convince middle America that this guy was okay. After that, his early career was off and running with hits like Don't Be Cruel and Hound Dog. And by now, you've probably figured out who we're talking about. If not, it's the king of rock and roll himself, Mr. Elvis Presley. It's said that there were four phases to Elvis's career. The first was when he burst onto the scene, full of youth and vigor, shaking his hips, outraging the parents, and stealing the hearts of their daughters. The second was when he was drafted into the army, came out, and did movies. Really bad movies when you watch them now, but you look at them fondly as the product of a bygone era. The start of the third phase was when this event happened. By 1968, Elvis was washed up in many people's eyes. Sure, he was doing those movies, but they were campy and definitely about as far removed as you could get from what made Elvis, 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 aka swagger. Sorry, but clam bake doesn't have the same swagger as hound dog or don't be cruel. Besides, during his movie phase, he had put on a few pounds. Plus, Bob Dylan and the Beatles had stolen the Swagger Spotlight, so Elvis needed career help fast, or else he was going to be an afterthought. His manager, Colonel Tom Parker, sold NBC TV on the idea for a TV special, which was to be a variety special. The director of the show, Steve Binder, though, saw it a different way. He wanted to do a mini-concert. It was to be a more intimate affair with Elvis jamming in an intimate setting with the band where they would joke around and play some songs. With, of course, a lot of pretty women around him. Because, you know, he's Elvis. Elvis signed on to the concept, but first, the man had to get into shape. He took his wife Priscilla and a then very young Lisa Marie on an extended family vacation in Hawaii. and When they came back... Elvis was tan, and most importantly, trim like his younger self. On the night of June 27, 1968, dressed in his now-legendary black leather outfit, they began to record the special. It still almost didn't happen, though, because Elvis got a case of stage fright, and even though he was calmed down, you can see how nervous he was at first if you pull up the clips on YouTube. Of course... Elvis being Elvis, those performing instincts kicked in and the swagger came back. And for one night in 1968, Elvis reminded people why he is, was, and will always be the king of rock and roll. After the success of the special, Elvis started doing concerts again. At this time, though, his young marriage to Priscilla Presley started to deteriorate. He also started taking prescription drugs. He had been against drugs like pot, cocaine, and the like, but felt like a lot of people that if a doctor prescribed it for you, then it wasn't illegal, and it was okay to take. The Presleys divorced in 1973, which actually starts Phase 4 of his career. By then, his health was in a tailspin. He twice overdosed on barbiturates in 1973, He kept touring during the entire time, found himself a new girlfriend, but really wasn't the same. According to members of his band, he would fall out of the limo, taking him to the performances, not being able to stand up. He would lean against the microphone, slurring the words to his songs. He gained weight. A lot of weight. In short, Elvis was in a bad way. His record label became concerned. Not so much about his health, apparently, but because he wasn't into recording albums anymore. His bodyguards started speaking out, but much like what happens when people speak out about such matters, they were immediately let go. They then went on to write a book about Elvis' drug use that was released only 16 days before his passing, a book Elvis tried to have stopped. The end came in an undignified way. While sitting on the toilet in his Graceland mansion, Elvis suddenly had massive pain, stood up for a second, then fell forward, face down. He tried to struggle, but to no avail. His new girlfriend found him, but although attempts were made to revive him, the drugs had taken their toll on his heart. Elvis Presley was pronounced dead from a heart attack brought on by 14 drugs in his system at 3.30 p.m. on August 16, 1977. Presented for induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by Sean and Julian Lennon, the king of rock and roll, Mr. Elvis Presley, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, class of 1986. Every week, we will look at the case for putting an artist into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This week, we're going to look at the case for putting Jane's Addiction into the Rock Hall. To the tail of the tape we go. In their 35-year on-and-off career, Jane's Addiction has put out four studio albums, three of which went top 20. They've also put out 18 singles, 11 of which went top 30 on the U.S. alternative chart, with three of those going number one. Led by lead singer Perry Farrell, Jane is one of the pioneers of alternative metal and helped to blow the doors wide open for alternative music to take over in the 1990s with songs like Been Caught Stealing, Jane Says, and True Nature. If you were an alt-rock band in the 90s, like Smashing Pumpkins, Incubus, System of a Down, and others, then you were more than likely influenced by Jane's Addiction. Also, let's not forget that Perry Farrell helped to start something that helped out musical artists in a big way over the past decades, the Lollapalooza Music Festival. Jane's Addiction was nominated once before, but didn't make the final cut. My belief, though, is that for their influence alone, Jane's Addiction deserves induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And now, on to our Spotlight Museum. Southwest of Minneapolis, Minnesota, is the suburb of Chanhassen. At 7801 Audubon Road in Chanhassen, you will find a place called Paisley Park. Paisley Park is the mansion that Prince owned right up until his death. Paisley Park had a recording studio already, along with a place where Prince would do an occasional concert or party. And since his death... The mansion has turned into a museum as well, showing off items from every aspect of his career. Ticket prices range anywhere from $45 to $160, depending on the package. Each package includes a tour, although with the $160 package, you'll get a tour of three different studios, a private screening of video footage in the editing suite, and even more archived items not found on the other tour packages. That tour is almost three hours, so children under 10 are not allowed on the expensive package tour, while children 5 and under are not allowed on the basic package tour. The museum is open Monday, Thursday, and Sunday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., Friday and Saturday, 9 a.m. to 6 p.m., closed Tuesday and Wednesday. And due to COVID restrictions, even though the museum is open at the moment, you will have to purchase your tickets online along with answering some questions before you go. PaisleyPark.com is the website for more information. That is P-A-I-S-L-E-Y-P-A-R-K dot for the website. Prince Rogers Nelson was born on June 7, 1958 and was the product of musical parents. Prince's nickname was Skipper throughout childhood because he hated the name Prince, ironically. Prince also suffered from epilepsy when he was younger and often had seizures. The disease didn't stop Prince from being involved in sports, though, including playing basketball. He also studied ballet, which definitely helped with his dancing skills in his videos and on stage. Prince's parents divorced when he was ten, and the rest of his childhood was spent bouncing around back and forth between parents and new stepparents, much like children of divorce do. Prince also found himself gravitating towards music, having written his first song when he was seven. He was rumored to have learned to play at least 10 instruments well before the time he hit his 20s. By the time he was 19, Prince was signed to a managerial contract and based on the strength of his demo recording, Prince signed with Warner Brothers Records and released his first album, For You, on April 7, 1978, just two months shy of his 20th birthday. A little over a year later, Prince released his self-titled second album, which had the hit I Want to Be Your Lover and Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad. In 1980, he released the album Dirty Mind, which got him into some trouble with songs like Head. It also got him an opening act spot on Rick James's tour. 1981's album Controversy spawned the hit of the same name. Around this time... Prince started forming side projects like The Time. Prince's double album, 1999, was released in 1982 and had the top ten hits 1999, Little Red Corvette, and Delirious. Little Red Corvette was helped from being one of only two songs from black artists that MTV was playing in heavy rotation when the music video came out, the other music video being Michael Jackson's Billie Jean at the time. Still, five albums in five years was only the beginning. Prince was about to become a megastar only two years later. After his 1999 album, Prince decided that he wanted to make a movie that was very loosely based on his life. He called the movie Purple Rain. This album was the second album to also credit his band The Revolution, as they did help write some of the songs. Certain songs have a bit of a history. Let's Go Crazy is probably the best crafted song about moral ethics ever to be made. The line towards the end about how pills, thrills, and daffodils will kill is kind of ironic now, considering the way that Prince passed away. The famous drum machine intro after the organs in the beginning of Prince's Let's Go Crazy is Prince's go-to drum machine, the Lin-LM-1. Take Me With You was supposed to be for his side project, Apollonia 6, but instead found its way onto the soundtrack. Contrary to popular belief, the female voice on the song is not Apollonia's and it's not Lisa and Wendy from the band. It's actually singer Jill Jones. Computer Blue was originally a 14-minute song, but got cut back. I'm sure the original version will turn up on a special edition of the soundtrack, if it hasn't already. Prince played all of the instruments on The Beautiful Ones and Darling Nikki, along with When Doves Cry. For Doves, he was trying to go with a different sound, so he pulled the bass line out of the song. I Would Die For You, Baby I'm a Star and Purple Rain were all actually recorded a year earlier. At a benefit concert for the Minnesota Dance Theater on August 3, 1983 at the now-famous First Avenue Club that was in the movie, Prince debuted those three songs as well as his new guitarist, Wendy Melvoin. The title track of the album has its own history. According to The Revolution's keyboardist, Dr. Fink, Prince wanted to write a song that sounded almost like it could have come from Bob Seger. The band Journey, though, tells a different story. According to them, Prince called them up one day and mentioned that he had written a song that sounded a lot like their hit song, Faithfully. He wanted their blessing so they wouldn't sue him. Not only did they give him their blessing once they heard the song, but they thanked him for asking them since a lot of bands had ripped off their sound without even asking them first. And if you listen to both songs, Purple Rain and Faithfully, back-to-back, you can kind of hear some of those similarities. Purple Rain, the album, came out on June 25th, 1984 and spent 32 weeks on the Billboard Albums Charts Top 10, taking the number one spot for 24 straight weeks. Purple Rain made rumpled Pirate shirts a fashion trend for a time, along with being the basis for a famous Seinfeld episode that you may know. It also gave Prince a lot of awards, including Grammys, a Golden Globe, and an Academy Award for Best Music Score. It also is considered a classic album and one of the greatest albums ever made. In 1986, after Purple Rain, Prince started work with his group The Revolution on a couple new projects. The group was coming off a run where they put out three albums in three years, Purple Rain in 1984, Around the World in a Day in 1985, and Parade in 1986. They were working on a couple of new things. The first was going to be an album called Dream Factory. The second was going to be just Prince himself doing an alter ego named Camille, which was actually his singing sped up and pitched higher. Something happened along the way of doing those albums, and Prince decided to break up the revolution and get a new band. He continued work on his new album, still using a lot of the songs that he and the revolution worked up. For some of the songs, he reworked the parts so that someone else could sing them. For a few, like Housequake, he kept the idea of using his alter ego voice. He had so many songs that he wanted to put out a triple album called Crystal Ball. His record label, Warner Brothers, didn't like that idea at all, so everybody compromised and decided on putting out a double album instead. And the album title was also changed. To Sign of the Times The album Sign of the Times was released on March 30, 1987 in England and March 31st in America. It spawned a concert film along with three big hits, Sign of the Times, You Got the Look with Sheena Easton, and I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man. The album was a top 20 hit in 14 different countries, including America, where it hit number 6. It was the 47th biggest album of 1987, even though it wasn't a huge seller by superstar standards. It sold just over 1 million copies, but not much more, probably because it was a double album and thus priced much more than your standard LP record. A lot of critics, though, consider it Prince's best work. I'm still partial towards Purple Rain, though. After the success of Sign of the Times came the fights with his record company creating new backup groups like the New Power Generation, a couple more movies like Under the Cherry Moon and Graffiti Bridge, along with revered status in the industry as a legend. One last thing that you may not have realized about Prince, and this is that even though he was a fashion icon, that cane that he stylishly walked around with wasn't there for the look. Prince injured his hip from all that jumping he used to do on stage. He had surgery to repair his hip and had started taking painkillers to deal with the pain. As with a lot of people, he ended up addicted to the pills and put his health in jeopardy. On April 15, 2016, Prince was taken to a hospital in Illinois while on a flight back home when he became unconscious. Once released, he went home to his mansion, Paisley Park Studios. He spent the next few days going around town seeing a jazz performance, among other things. But on the morning of April 21, 2016, Prince was found dead in his elevator at Paisley Park. He had been dead for at least six hours. The official cause of death was an overdose of the painkiller fentanyl which he was taking to deal with the hip pain. His ashes are on display in an urn in the atrium of Paisley Park, which is now a museum, along with still being a recording studio. You can find not only his ashes, but his clothing, studio, instruments, and other memorabilia at Prince's former home and studio, Paisley Park. Located just outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota, at 7801 Audubon Road in Chanhassen, Minnesota. And that is it for the Music Halls of Fame Podcast, Episode 1. Thank you very, very much for listening.